We're doing a series I'm calling Storied, Finding Your Story and God's Story. And what we're doing is we're actually using the book of Exodus because the Exodus story, I'm going to argue, is actually the heart of what God's story is all about. And what we're going to be doing all semester together is actually showing how when, you, when we read particular the Exodus story, how God rescued his people out of slavery, how he brought them through the wilderness into the promised land, is actually your story and my story too. So to do that, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus, and we're just going to look at a short uh, passage tonight, and I'm going to sort of set us up for the semester. So if you brought a Bible, go to Exodus chapter 2, and this is one of my favorite places in the book of Exodus, it's because it shows us something about the heart of who God is. A lot of us come, and your problem and my problem is that we don't have a very good grasp of who God is. We get God wrong. And part of what I hope happens for you tonight and for me tonight is that your, your view of God gets a little bit bigger. Because your problem, why you struggle and why I struggle is because my view of God is way too small. He's a tiny God, right? I don't know if you ever watched um, the skit, oh gosh, Kids in the Hall. It's way, way old. But there's this skit in Kids in the Hall that I've always loved where it's just people. It's a random skit. It's these Canadians who have this weird sense of humor. But the skit is all they do is this, is there's a guy sitting in a park, and all he does this is he goes, I crush you, I crush you. And he looks at people and he says, I crush you, and I crush you, and I crush you, and I crush you. And what I want to say is, like, that's our spiritual problem. We have this very tiny view of God where we think we can increase small, he's tiny. But what Exodus is going to do, and what we're going to do this semester, is see that God is huge. He's huge in his holiness. He's huge in his faithfulness. And he's huge in his love and commitment to you. And you and I can never hear that enough because we forget as soon as you walk out of these doors, you're going to struggle to remember that. So Exodus 2, here we go, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet. We thank you that it is a light unto our path. We thank you that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it pierces our very hearts. And Father, we pray that something like that would happen tonight, that you would pierce our hearts with your word, that we might see how little we are and how big you are. Father, we pray these things and we ask these things in Christ's name. So, I don't know if you're like me, but um, I've had a lot of different phases in my life. And one of my phases that I'm not very proud of is I had a, um, a phase from about 7th grade to ninth grade where I really like thought of myself kind of like as a rapper. Not that I, not that I recorded anything. But I was really, really, really into 90s hip-hop culture. So it was like Dr. Dre and Black Sheep and Snoop and 
Ice Cube and all these rappers. And, uh, and uh, it was an interesting phase. I actually at one point thought like I could wear a White Sox jersey backwards and I wore a White Sox hat backwards. I don't know what I was thinking, but we all have phases, and thankfully those phases don't last very long. But in recent years, my favorite rapper of all, of, uh, in recent years is Lil Wayne. Um, and not that I can condone what his music is about, because we are NREF after all. But the thing that fascinates me about him is the way that he ad-libs everything. I don't know if you know this about Lil Wayne, but he actually doesn't write anything down. Everything's actually spontaneous. I think, I mean, I can make the argument, if you know, for those of you who are sort of against hip-hop or whatever, that it's actually, it's very poetic, the way he writes his stuff. I wish it was a little bit more, you know, God was in the picture, right, a little bit more. Um, maybe a lot of it more. But... But here's one of the most interesting things, though. I don't know if you know his story, but Lil Wayne went to prison for a while. And he did an interview coming out of prison with Rolling Stone. And here's what he said about the Bible. Listen to what he said. He said, I also read the Bible for the first time. It was deep. I liked the parts where some character was once this, but he ended up being that. Like he'd be dissing Jesus and then end up being a saint. That was cool. And that's it, which is pretty profound for Lil Wayne. But what I want you to see, what I want you to see, what I want you to see is he actually is hitting on something that we're going to be talking about all semester. Is that when you and I think about the Bible, a lot of times we think about it like a book, like a book of codes. So if you watch How I Met Your Mother, you know Barney's bro code. So we kind of think of the Bible as the Bible is sort of its own bro code, where you sort of look at it and it's a code of conduct for how you're supposed to live. That's how a lot of us look at the Bible. Or a lot of us look at the Bible, maybe you're more sort of intellectual and you're drawn to like theology, and maybe you look at the Bible like a textbook. It's a place you go for answers about who God is and about life and et cetera, et cetera. But what Little Wayne gets that you and I often, sometimes I want to say like Little Wayne gets the Bible better than you and me right here. Because he gets that the Bible is a story. That it's got a beginning and it's got an end. And that we are in that story. And that actually your life is not going to make sense and your life is not going to be full and your life is not going to be good until you find your story in God's story. Right? That's what we're talking about this semester. So three things I want to talk about from this passage tonight and just setting us up, thinking about that idea, that idea that the Bible is this great story in which the Exodus story is actually the very heart of what God is doing in salvation. So here are three things I want you to see. We're going to talk about the necessity of story. We're going to talk about the power of story. And then lastly, we're going to talk about finding your story in God's story. So the necessity of story, the power of story, and then lastly, finding your story in God's story. So think with me for a second about the necessity of story. And here's what you see. Here's a simple point. Is it's impossible to live life without some kind of story. Your story might not be God's story, but you've got a story. You're living your life right now in some kind of story. It might be very different from what we're looking at in Exodus in terms of the way you relate to God or think of God. But you're living your life in a story. It's inescapable. It's impossible. Um, and here's what's interesting about our passage is here are God's people. You know what's happened. They've gone to Egypt and they're, they're, they're enslaved for years and years and years. But what's interesting is it's very clear from the beginning that as soon as the book of Exodus starts, they were in a story. And there are two different people that are living in two different stories. You have Israel who's living and trying to live in God's story. And then you've got the Egyptians who are living in a very, very different story. But to not live or to live without a story. I feel like I've said story like a thousand times. But get ready. We're going to say it a thousand more. 
to try to live your life without a story is actually impossible for two reasons. It's impossible to live without a story for two reasons. Here's the first. It's philosophically impossible. Because there are big questions that you and I have to answer. Let's just do three of, three of let's say, life's deepest questions that you inevitably, even if you don't answer, you still, it's still an answer. Here they are. Three inevitable questions, deep questions. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Who am I? Why am I here on this earth? And where am I going? And what I want you to see is it's inevitable that you answer those. So if you're someone who's sort of skeptical about Christianity, you're more of a secular kind of person, maybe you think, who am I? Okay, I just, I evolved. We're sort of, the world is sort of here through this big bang, and I sort of just evolved. Why am I here? I've got to find some kind of meaning. I'm here for survival, but I've got to, I've got to find and create some kind of meaning. There's no ultimate meaning except the, the one that you find. Where am I going? Nowhere, ultimately. Like if you're being honest, you would say, well, as soon as I die, that's it. My life is over. So therefore, you're, 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 maybe your lifestyle is going to be, you're a very depressed person because that is kind of depressing. Or maybe your lifestyle is going to be, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or think about the Christian story. It answers it a little differently, doesn't it? Who am I? I was made God, by God for God. Why am I here? My, my uh, Presbyterians could say to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Where am I going? I'm going to the new heavens and the new earth to be with Jesus, where God reigns and is present in this world. But my point is, but maybe you're a person, you're like, I don't know. But even if you say, I don't know, or we can't know, you're still answering those three questions. It's inevitable. And as soon as you answer those questions, you've got a story. You've got a narrative. You've got something that you're living in. So first, it's philosophically impossible. But second, it's personally impossible. It's personally impossible to try to live life without a story or not in a story. Here's why. It's because from the moment you're born, things happen to you and you do things. Tragic things happen to you and you do tragic things. Good things happen to you and you do good things. But from the moment you're born, I love the way that one guy says it, that we're all victims and villains. From the very moment you're born, every single one of us is a victim and a villain and we're in a story. Because we have a past, and we have a present, and our life has an end. Personally and philosophically, there's no way to escape it. Here's the way that I was thinking about it. Um, so I've never been a big gamer, uh, but I did have my moments in college. I told you, I think, about my obsession with NCAA football. But I also had some, I've never been like a big into like uh, role-playing games. I don't know exactly what you call them. Uh, like I've never been into, uh, oh, what's the one? Um... World of Warcraft, thank you. World of Warcraft, I've never been into that. If you're into that, awesome. That is great. We all have our different hobbies. Um, so, but I did play a little bit of Grand Theft Auto, Vice City especially, which is an incredible game. And I did play a little bit of Call of Duty. I am terrible at first-person shooter games. Let's just get this on the table. Like, if you invite me over to your place and we play a first-person shooter, like, I'm going to be the first one dead. Like, I'm just, I'm that guy. You don't want me on your Call of Duty team. I'm terrible at them. But when I play those games, the, the part that always frustrates me about some of those games is in between levels, you've got this, the backstory, right? You know what I'm saying? So if you're playing Vice City or you're playing Call of Duty, you've got the backstory where, like, if, you know, whatever game you're playing, but, like, maybe if you're Call of Duty, it shows some agent, 
And like all the guys are getting in the airplane. He's like, okay, here's your mission. Now, if you're like me, you want to like skip that and just get to the level, right? I'm like, I don't want to watch this like five minute backstory of my character. That seems kind of weird. So I just want to skip and get into the action. But the problem is if I don't understand the story, I don't understand the mission, then, then I'm just going to be wandering aimlessly in the level. Like I don't even know what I'm doing. So in a sense, the story has to be part of it. The story has to be there. If you're going to understand purpose, why you're here, what, what your life is supposed to be about. So first, the necessity of story. Second thing with me, though, about the power of story. And here's what I want you to see in this, in, in this point. I want you to see that as soon as you answer those questions, both philosophically and personally, you've got a story, and you've got a story that shapes everything in your life. It actually shapes everything. It shapes how you approach everything. So what's interesting about Exodus is that here are God's people, Israel, and they've been enslaved for years and years and years, and they've been in Egypt for years and years and years, and yet they have a separate identity. Like when you and I would think is if they've been in this place for years, they would become almost indistinguishable from the Egyptians, but they don't. Because there's some sense in which the story of God is shaping all of their decisions. It's shaping the way that they approach money. It's shaping the way they approach sex. It's shaping the way they approach work. It's shaping the way they approach relationships, friendships. It's shaping the way they approach sleep. It's it's shaping the way they, they... Everything. It shapes everything. Let me do two examples here that I think are really, really important. Two examples of thinking about how the the power of story to shape everything in your life. Here are two. Two that I think... As a college student, you've got to wrestle with and you already do wrestle with. Let's do sex and let's do career. Let's just get, let's just get sex on the table and because it's going to be a little awkward and we're just going to kind of enter into it. Um, so let's embrace the awkwardness together. Um, but I want you to think about this. Think about how whatever story you're living in shapes the way that you think about sex. So let me give you sort of two examples. And we're, we could do so many, but I want to give you, if you're living within the secular story, how it's going to shape the way you think about sex. And if you're living within the Christian story, how it shapes the way you think about sex. So first think with me about if you're living within the secular story, how do you think it's going to affect the way you think about sex and your body and your sexuality? Okay, here's how, here's how, I'm going to, here's how it does. So first, if you're, if you're in that story, then you say, okay, there is no God. We're here by chance. I'm a body without a soul. The point of sex then becomes, we, the point of sex becomes, it, it brings me physical pleasure. It feels good. If it feels good, do it so long as the other person is enjoying it too. Like that's the one code that you don't break, Right. As long as both partners are enjoying, I'm sorry to do this motion. Just put my hands behind my back here. As long as, as long as both partners are willing and enjoying it, then sex is good. But then think about the Christian story. Here's the Christian story. The Christian story says, "Okay, you are made. There is a God. You are made by Him for Him." You're not just a body, you're a soul with a body, C.S. Lewis would say. You're not a body with a soul, you're a soul that has a body. And he would say, the Bible says that the point of sex, and it's actually, I think this is actually, it's very, on the one hand, powerful, but also beautiful. The the point of sex is is more than physical pleasure, surely that's part of it. And some of you need to think about that with God. Like, God is not sort of, like, you know, getting uncomfortable when he thinks about sex, because God created sex. 
right? Like that was kind of part of the deal with Adam and Eve. They were naked before God and unashamed. Like some of you, that should blow some of your minds, but they were naked and unashamed before God because they were doing what was pleasing to him. So, but the point is something deeper than just physical pleasure. The point is that sex is actually a symbol of a promise that I'm making that says I, am fu- I fully belong to you. I am fully yours. So I'm not going to use my marriage as an example because that could get really awkward. But the Bible says that marriage is actually the only place where you can fully, in all ways, give yourself to another person. Both emotionally, physically, but legally. Because if you're willing to give yourself to someone physically and emotionally, why would not be willing to give yourself to someone legally? So the idea is that sex becomes what what Tim Keller calls this covenant renewal service. Uh, This covenant renewal ceremony where literally in that act I am saying, I am yours and you are mine. That's the heart of the covenant, y'all. That's literally what God says to his people. I am your God and you are my people. Now I hope for you and for me that makes sex something much bigger, right? This bigger than this physical pleasure. And so that means it's good when it's in within that committed relationship of marriage. But what I'm trying to get you to see is that story shapes the way you think about sex. If you're living your story for yourself, you're going to think about sex very differently in the lines you have with your girlfriend or boyfriend or fiance than if you're living within God's story and really believing what he says about it. Right? Let's do career, though. All right, so let's think about this. So think about your career. You're here at college, Lord willing, you know, most of you are here, I can do the little thing. You're, most of you are here, if you're being honest with yourself, you're here because you know unless you go to college, you're not going to get the job that you want. And if you don't get the job that you want, you're not going to make the money that you want. And if you don't make the money that you want, you're not going to be able to wear the clothes that you want. And you're not going to be able to have the Apple products that you want. And you're not going to be able to take the vacations that you want to the beach, to the mountains, on cruises. And you're not going to be able to have, send your kids to the kind of schools you want to send them to. And you're not going to be in the sort of class you want to be a part of. You're not going to be able to drive the sort of car you want to drive. Like, that's why, if you're being, let's just strip it down. That's why most of you are here. That's, what, that's why most of us think, unless I go to college, those things, this American dream is, is unattainable. And if you're being really honest with yourself, that's just so in the water that we drink. That's just where we are. But is that the Christian story? Like, is that why, is that why, is that God's story for you? Think about it this way. Think about sort of maybe God's story, the Christian story. Here's a God. He's given you gifts. He's given you gifts for two reasons, to glorify him and to bring good and hope into the world. I love the way that Frederick Buechner says it. Here's what he says. When you're thinking about vocation and calling, this is a great quote that's worth writing down. He says this. How do I think about where I'm being called and what I should do with my life post-college? What I should study here and work afterwards? Here's what Buechner says. Don't, don't, next time you go to advisement, please write this in your hand. Like just write, just tattoo. I wish we could just tattoo this on our hands. Tattoo it on our, not on our faces because that would be weird. But here's what Buechner says. The place where God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Isn't that beautiful? The place where God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What if you thought about the classes you took? What if you thought about the major you are in? And seniors, don't freak out at me. Like, I finished in psychology. 
Like, I switched majors like three times from English to early education, where I was like the only guy, to psychology, and I just like had to finish. It was like I couldn't switch again. I just needed to finish. So don't freak out at me if you're a senior, but you've got to think career, okay, where, where do, does my deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet? And that's how you begin to find your story in God's story. And that's the last thing I want you to see is finding your story in God's story. Now, what's interesting about Exodus, this is what we're going to be talking about week after week, is that their story, if you want to just boil the book of Exodus down into bite-sized pieces, little, you know, little snack-sized, fun-sized Snickers, when I get Snickers, I like to get the, the king size. Sometimes I just need the snack size. And here's the snack size version, the fun size version of Exodus. You ready? Four parts of the story. First part is slavery. That's what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks, that God's people are in slavery in Egypt. But then there's the second part, rescue. God intervenes. They cry out. He intervenes and in powerful, gracious ways delivers them from bondage and delivers them out of slavery. Part three is the part where they're wandering in the wilderness, where God is teaching them. He's present with them in the wilderness. Sometimes we don't understand that, but he's teaching them to trust him. He's teaching them to trust him in the face of temptation. He's teaching them to trust him in the face of suffering. And he's walking in the wilderness with them. And then the fourth part is the promised land, where God is, is making, where God is Present and making all the sad things coming true and making all things new. Now, what I want you to see is that that's not just Israel's story. That's your story. And that's my story. What I love about this passage is, you saw it, is the people are groaning. The people know that they're enslaved. Do you know that you're enslaved? Do you know what Jesus said about slavery? He said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Do you know about yourself that you are so enslaved to sin that there is nothing in you? There is nothing in you that can free yourself. A lot of you know this. A lot of you have wrestled with addiction. A lot of you have wrestled with with this struggle, the same struggle, maybe it's with guys or girls. Whatever, maybe it's just with anger. Maybe it's with approval. But do you feel the enslavement of it? God says, unless you, we just sing it, the only fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. Do you know who feels their need for God? Those who know they can't free themselves. But then that's the second part, right? Your story, the rescue, that's what Jesus came for. Jesus is the true and greater Moses who leads us not out of slavery in Egypt, but leads us out of slavery and sin, and he leads, it, he leads us into fellowship and relationship with himself. He's the true and greater Moses who leads us out, who went to the cross, who literally was willing to, to take all the effects of our sin and our bondage on himself that you and I might be free. And Jesus is walking with us now through the wilderness. Jesus in your life, like you can look back, especially my seniors, you can look back to, to freshman you, like, if you belong to Jesus, you can look back at freshman you, and you can see the ways that Jesus has faithfully been leading you through the wilderness that is college. From all, in the face of all the temptations, in the face of all the trials, you can see you haven't been faithful. Lord knows you haven't been faithful. But Jesus has. Jesus has been faithful to love you through thick and thin, and Jesus will always be faithful to love you through thick and through thin 
and that Jesus is leading you somewhere. He's leading you to the true promised land. Not to Canaan, but the true promised land where sin and sadness and tears and pain will forever be gone because God will be present to heal. So you see what it does. What I just said to you actually answers our deepest questions. Who am I? I'm a slave to sin who's been rescued by Jesus. Why am I here? To learn to trust God through the wilderness that is life until he comes again or until I die. To learn to trust him in the face of trials and temptations. Where am I going? I'm going to be in that place. We're just going to make the, like, you know, some of you are party people, some of you aren't. I'm an introvert, so I never was like the party guy, like the life of the party guy. Some of you are. That's great. Like, you know, uh, you know, we know what the Bible says about alcohol. But here's what I want you to see. Is the best wedding reception, the best party you've ever been to is going to pale in comparison to the party that Jesus throws in the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to pale. It's going to make those parties look so small. So dumb. Because that party is going to be the party you want to go to. That party is going to be the party where there's incredible dancing and none of us are like feeling awkward because we're with Jesus and we're like out of our insecurity and fear. There's going to be incredible drink and food because Jesus is there. Do you remember Jesus when he turned the water into wine? They said it was like, where did you get this wine? It's the most incredible wine we've ever had. Um, it's, he's Jesus. There's going to be all, it's going to be amazing and that's where we're going. I want to close with this. There's a, um, there's a, a pitcher. Uh, he pitches for the Mets. His name is R.A. Dickey, which is an incredible name. But R.A. Dickey is the only knuckleball pitcher, if you're a baseball guy. Uh, Tim Wakefield um, was one of the most recent ones. But R.A. Dickey is like the last of his craft where he – part. it's a long story, but um, part of learning that he had an injury in his arm, all he can throw now is this knuckleball. And R.A. Dickey wrote this book about his story. Uh, a couple, I think it was last year or two years ago. And he basically opens up in his story. It's pretty incredible. He opens up about being sexually abused when he was uh, a little kid. Apparently the way it worked was he was the only child and his parents were divorced. And he had a babysitter that just took advantage of him. And for 23 years of his life, he was 8 years old when this happened. But for 23 years of his life, he hid that from everybody. Friends, parents, even his wife. But then through this crazy event where he tried to kill himself and and literally tried to drown himself but then got rescued, and he finally began to open up about his story, what he personally had experienced, and how God had met him with grace in his story. And here's what he said. He gives an interview on NPR, and just listen to what he said, and I'll close with this. He said, he's talking about the sexual abuse. He said, it had been locked away for 23 years and had wreaked havoc on my life and the relationships I had in my life. Not only with my friends, who really weren't even my friends, but I didn't trust anybody. Even my wife didn't know the darkest things about me. I kind of conned her into marrying me. And it's a tough admission to say that. I loved her dearly, so I projected, listen to what he says, I loved her dearly, so I projected who I wanted to be, but I would never let her inside. And then listen. Because I always feared if someone knew the real me, they would run the other way. But therapy, God's grace, helped me see that I could trust people. And that there were others who could hold my story well. And I love the way he says that. That there were others who could hold my story well. I don't know what your story is. But I know there's one who can hold it well. 
and his name is Jesus. And I hope this semester that as you begin to let Jesus hold your story well, part of what that's going to do in you is we're together going to begin to hold one another's stories well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, this time together. We do pray that even as we leave here that you would continue to take your words and that you would burn them in our hearts and that you would, um, because you love us, don't let us leave here and, um, and not think about what you have, had, what you have said to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us even as we go from here to have conversations and to think and to pray and to talk about what we have heard. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.